The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning from P.I.'s Declassified. Today we want to talk about fraud, the dark subject of fraud, investigating fraudsters and scam artists. Rod Gagnon, a private investigator from Colorado, is my guest. Good morning, Rod. Hey, good morning, Francie. Thanks for being on the show. Sure. So, folks, are you interested in finding bank and investment account relationships or finding hidden assets like boats and planes and documenting fraudulent transfers or finding shell corporations anywhere in the world? Rod is the guy we should talk to. So, uh, Rod, how how did you get involved in this niche of the private investigation business? Well, I've always I've always been good at uh, finding people and finding assets. Uh, when I got out of high school, I thought that uh, you know what business do I want to go in? I want to go into banking. So I did that for a year in a collection department, and then I uh, retired from banking, thinking I knew everything. Um, mm-hmm. started, the, started the repossession company to the horror of my parents, but uh, found out I was actually very good at it. Um, our specialty was finding the cars that the, uh, the, the other companies couldn't find. Yeah. So from that, I just built up. Once you have kids, you can't really be out as much nights and weekends. So this is a white-collar version of that. Okay. Oh, that's really interesting. So, And why do you think you were particularly good in this area? Um, I think part of it is the detail. I mean, I could go through, I would get a copy of the um, application. I think it was one of the few repo man guys that would get a copy of the application, go through every single line, you know, the address that they were at, their work phone number, uh, all the relatives, and I could uh, deconstruct it and try to find the pattern and find out what would happen to them. Between that and learning um, human psychology, there's a lot to be said for actually uh, being out of the field and actually talking to people and talking to neighbors and the postmen and everybody. And uh, it, just, it just worked well. Well, you know, when you talk about going through the document, uh, there's a guy, by the, a friend of mine by the name of Don Ray out here in California who has a, a uh, presentation he calls Interviewing the Document, which it sounds like what you did. You interviewed the document. Exactly, yeah. I was... Uh, yeah, it was like a puzzle, and every single repossession was had its own little twist. You just had to figure out what it was, and that's that's a lot what I do now, except they're a much bigger twist. Yeah, right, <laughs> for sure. Interesting. So then you, at some point after the um, repo gig, you became a private investigator. How did that happen? Well, it it was kind of a 
a natural transition. We would start we started getting into background checks and um, locating assets for pre-litigation. And it was just kind of like a natural. Some of the attorneys that had met us would say, you know, we're trying to find this party. We can't find them. You're really good at finding people that nobody, nobody can find, you know, um, or finding what happened to this boat. And it wasn't necessarily a, an asset recovery. Um, it was more of a litigation. And it was just slowly one step at a time until uh, I worked my way up through, um, uh, and I started going to small claims courts. I saw that um, nobody seemed to be working that. Hmm. So I started visiting the small claims courts in uh, Nashville, New Hampshire, going through files and finding cases that uh, uh, weren't, you know, nobody had collected on because I found those people um, weren't very good at being able to find the people if they disappeared or try to find their assets. So mm-hmm. I started doing that. And at that time, I thought I was, you know, pretty much the only person who did it. And then uh, obviously, uh, once it got bigger, I started finding out there was uh, a lot of people that did it. Uh, that's an interesting idea. I've never heard of anybody doing that. So you would you'd pull the cases, the small claims cases, and then you would contact the uh, whoever won the 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 case, exactly. the judgment. Exactly. In fact, there was even more opportunities. One of those things where you don't see the opportunity until you jump in. And once I started going through the files, there were some files where, you know, uh, with the court cases, if the party isn't notified, then they, the clerk will throw it out. It won't even get in front of the judge. So I would send those people a letter saying, hey, I have a guaranteed locate program. I'll find the guy for you. Because I have a motivated party who's looking to, to sue this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just can't find them. And I, that got me into more the locate side. Um, and then I learned how to start working with uh, the people on the asset recovery side. But there's, there's actually a network around the U.S. of people who work out of small claims courts. Well, that sounds a lot like uh, the air finders. Did you ever do anything like that? Well, I, I tried. Um, it was always an area that I've been fascinated in. I, I love unclaimed funds. I love missing heirs. And I always think that that would have been the direction I would have gone in if I hadn't been successful at this. But mm. you know, it's, only, it's only so many hours in the day. And I love the stories of the, uh, the missing heirs. But alas, I, I, I ended up uh, tracking money instead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you do. You, <laughs> that's what you do. You, you follow the money. Yeah. Well, you know... Um, you first uh, came to, to mind to me when you wrote an article about mortgage fraud, which I thought was just a fascinating article. Okay. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. I think that was, was that the one that was uh, in December? That it was, December 2015. Okay. Yeah. That one, that one was, in, we were involved in a case where we were baffled because we were, you know, was trying to find the fraud that was involved in the situation. The person, our debtor, had was living in his address in Nevada, and when I went and did the research, he owned the house, but there was no mortgage. So we could not understand why the, why the person would do this. Uh, so at first we thought they were just renting. So, uh, but as we dug deeper and started peeling uh, away the different layers and stuff, we started to see and understand he had done this kind of thing in the past. And it's kind of, I think they call it keys for cash, where they'll approach a party and say, you're going to lose your house, you know, I'll give you some money so you can move. You know, you give me your keys, and I'll go in and take over your mortgage payment. I'm here to save you kind of situation. Mm. And, and mm-hmm. when you get a chance to get back on your feet, maybe I can sell it back to you or something. And there's different variations of that scheme out there. And that's what he had done to these people. They had moved out, and he said he would make the mortgage payment, and he never did. So he got the house for free, and that's what we assumed he was doing. What he didn't realize what he, his real M.O. was that once the house had, he would let it go to foreclosure. He would fight it. He would pretend to fight it. Uh, tell the finance company, no, I want to stay and, and not really fight it. 
And then once they sold it, his goal, his real goal was, he was uh, the hope that there was a foreclosure overage, uh, which is some unclaimed funds that are, or funds that are left over once the, the underlying mortgage is sold. Now, hmm. it, the reason why he would get that is because property was deeded to him. Now, it didn't matter that the, the mortgage was still tied to the property to the prior people. He was looking at the fact that he technically owned it. Whoever has that last deed is the person that gets that money. And then, wow. so, and then his goal was to go down to the county and pick up, you know, let dust settle, go down the county and pick it up. But um, what he didn't realize is that uh, creditors can actually lean that if they're, they have a, a time period in the beginning where they can grab that. Mm-hmm. That was, that was well, a lot. That, that is amazing scam. I, you know, I wasn't aware of that at all. Um, that, that's one thing I have to say about researching financial fraud is that these guys are so creative and in many cases are way ahead of a lot of people um, on pulling this stuff. Very, very creative. And it's as fast as I learn these things and discover them, there's more and more variation. <laughs> there's a new one coming up, right. Oh, they're, well, they're, they're so good at it. Well, I was really interested in this. You quoted the study from the Global Financial Integrity that illicit financial flow that, you, that is called, I guess, IFF, is responsible for 1.1 trillion U.S. dollars. Yes. That's amazing. Yeah, a lot of money brings out the worst in people sometimes. For, for sure. Yeah. So, um, so t- tell me how this works again. The guy knocks on the door. <laughs> right. It, 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 and he says, you know, I realize I can see that there's a foreclosure coming up. You know, um, they're very, good, very, very good talkers. So they wouldn't be able to pull this off. And they tell the people, you know, you, are, are you going to be able to do this? And generally it's because somebody lost their job. There's no way they're going to be able to pull it off. So they say, look, I'll give you five grand so you can move out. Go get an apartment. Uh, and I'll let me step in. I'm struggling because I had bad credit, but now I have a great job. We can help each other. That kind of situation. Mm-hmm. Let me step mm-hmm. in and take over your mortgage payment. Because what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to lose your house anyways. And if I can't make it, then neither, you know, at least you got out with some moving money and a chance to try to get back on your feet. I so can they, see they, how that, yeah, are, that would sound very attractive. And they, it, works for a lot of people because, you know, there are a lot of people who are very trusting or at the very least uh, hopeful that something will come along to help them out. And that's what these people prey on. Well, and particularly with the uh, downturn in the economy where everybody was really losing their houses right and left, this must have been rampant. Uh, right. And, and the part of the problem is you don't really know how much of it's going on because it's, it's a private party transaction. You know, the only part that you can actually see, like in our case, the thread that we pulled on was we saw the deed had been recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, the, you know, the mortgage had not. Then I normally go over and I look for the mortgage being discharged and the new mortgage going on. Uh, and it wasn't. That mortgage was still ticking along. And uh, that's, how, that's how you can start to see it. But there's no list of, of people who've done this until, until the start, stuff starts uh, uh, falling apart. Amazing. Is, is the United States the worst offender in this area, or, or, what, or are there other countries that are worse? Well, that's it. We're starting to see more and more international. Uh, a lot of our stuff is it's one of the major trends we've been seeing over the last couple of years, is the U.S., from what I've seen, has the largest amount, um, because only because we have so much, uh, a lot, so much wealth here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's in, and our system is pretty open. Um, on the way it works. But more and more, it seems like a lot of these debtors are getting into these asset protection uh, um, training classes. 
and we're starting to track these contractors and people who have uh, money and starting to move their stuff offshore. So our whole focus is starting to go. Now it's starting to go international. Interesting. Really interesting. So, so what do you do when you start out, Rod, when you start investigating a, a case? Get, like, give me a, a scenario that uh, you can kind of follow the trail for us and show sure. us what you do. I, I normally I have what, what is about a seven-step process that I go through, a mental process that I, I try to go. And along that path, it can hook a sharp right, hook a sharp left, and generally it does. But generally, my goal is to get through that process. And I'll, I'll start with the, the address history. Now, back in the old days, I think we called it a credit header. Um, right. But, but I, don't, I don't think a lot of people remember that term. I think nowadays, we, we, it, it, for us, it's a comprehensive report. Uh, and I, you know, that is the electronic portion of it. And I try not to concentrate on that too much. I think there's so many PIs that have become very dependent on data sources, which, you, which is a phenomenal tool. It really is. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but there's so many holes in it in getting that. Um, from there, well, all I'm using that address history for is because I need to lead to where the county recorder's office. So I need to start seeing, because major assets are either registered or they're recorded uh, for ownership in the U.S., either UCCs, recorder's offices, uh, through, or through DMVs or whatever. They have to be registered or recorded in some form mm-hmm. uh, for the major assets, and that's, that's where I have to start pulling the threads. For example, here in Colorado, uh, um, I was... Going through the address history, I checked a remote county that the guy used to live in, and I found a piece of land. I mean, it was a two-acre parcel of land he had bought years ago. He had plans on throwing a cabin up on it. Um, and he had – but the problem was that that county was not reporting anything to anybody. So it didn't show up. That piece of land didn't show up, but everybody had missed it. Nobody had caught it. Um, and it was only by so, going back and starting to work those public recorder's offices. Oh, Okay. Um, yeah. So you so you didn't go back and get an address and tie it into an address. Yes. Well, I started with the address, and the address got me the county. And okay. Then the county. I went to the recorder's office, and I was like, "Well, he doesn't really have a presence here, so it's very tempting not to look at it because there's so much data you can drown in it." But I try to I try to stick to it and say, "Okay, I'm going to go back at least the first ten years, or or fifteen years, go back and see what's there." And there was that that piece of land sitting right there. And yeah. when when that was all paper records. <laughs> Now it's a little easier, but when it was all paper records, that's a really daunting process, isn't it? Well, it, it can be. Part of it comes down to is I think you just have to get really good at being able to read the grantor-grantee index. And I think because our data is so easy to get and so well aggregated um, and so well presented that it's, it's and time-consuming to go back to those recorder's offices. But mm-hmm. if you get good at reading, a gra- I can read a grantor-grantee index like a book. You know, it's, it's reverse chronology, and you go right down the page, go, okay, got this loan, paid this one off, got this loan, paid this one off, um, mm-hmm. got this property. And once you, once you, you view it through that timeline, which is the whole goal of the going to the recorder's office or the Secretary of State or these source documents, that's what I'm trying to get to. I, I need to see the source documents. Okay. Is because I have to create a timeline. Um, a lot of um, investigators do snapshots because that's, that's what the client needs. They need a snapshot of what is existing today. In my case, my lens is different. I'm doing a timeline. I have to mm-hmm. understand when they were thought they were going to get sued or thought there was an event that was going to happen, somebody died or something happened, what did they do? And you can, you can see that in their actions on that timeline. Mm-hmm. But you've got to put all the pieces on it. It's hard to read a timeline out of a comprehensive report. Much, it's much better, and you get a, it, it's a lot of work to build a timeline, but when you do it, patterns come out that you just don't see 
reading a comprehensive report by, by topic or category. We probably should explain what comprehensive report is. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so, uh, so you use a proprietary data provider yes. that where you um, where private investigators has have access to that the general public would not, uh, and with maybe we can have we might have the the name or date of birth or uh, other information that we can identify who who you're looking for. Correct. And then from that, you can print out. Uh, everything that entity knows about a given person. Correct. It'll list that would that would be the comprehensive. Yeah, real estate, uh, litigation. It's they're great. They're phenomenal, but they're only as good as the the data sets that are used to build them. Um, Correct. They're, they're I like to use them as an overview. Point point me in different directions, but other than that, I try not to depend on them. I would um, think the general public would be a little freaked out to know this. <laughs> That well, their, yeah. all their information is being aggregated into one uh, one report. Right. Well, the good news is, I mean, it's going to licensed investigators who are licensed and bonded, so they're supposed to be uh, in control of that and uh, dealing with that responsibly. Which is which. Which I'm, you know, I'm glad it's under those circumstances. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I'm. Let me just say that not everybody. I, I mean, you can't get the information yet. Typically, have to have a site inspection and all kinds of things to prove you're who you say you are. You have a legitimate bit, private investigation business, et cetera. That, that's correct. Um, sorry. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess comprehensive reports become so foundational to investigators. Like, to me, it's like a it's very much a bread and butter term. Right. Um, right. right. Okay. But to give you a quick example on this, this timelining of everything, um, I had a case in Massachusetts, and it was about I think they owed about seven million dollars. But the, when I put the timeline together, what popped out that I could not see from, because there's so much data, is I saw where the debtor, he'd gotten sued, and he had gone through a divorce about the same time, and then he had, he had filed something with the county saying the homestead had changed. That he, and in the homestead, it said that his wife, ex-wife was now the person who owned the house. And, he, and it was written right in there, you know, the Mr. Debtor does not live at this address. Mr. Debtor has no interest in this property. It now belongs to the ex-wife. Okay, mm-hmm. and then and then they homesteaded it. So of course, you know, we, we see that's homestead. You can't really touch it unless there's enough equity. And then, but what he didn't know what happened was about a year later, when his ex-wife had moved into one of the suburbs of Boston, she went and bought a condo. And then she went to her attorney. The attorney properly recorded a homestead as he should, as part of what he does. Um, which means the debtor was actually living at the first place. Had no idea that the ex-wife had gone to file the second homestead. Oh wow! Which validated the first homestead, which now opened up about a half million dollars worth of equity to be attached. But, but, but if that wasn't all lined up, you, those opportunities don't pop out. Okay, I need to ask more questions about this, but we need to take a break, Rod. We'll be oh, right sorry. back. Okay. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org. 
or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Hey, are you interested in investigating mortgage fraud or finding hidden assets? Colorado Private Investigator Ron Gagnon is here to talk about it. Ron, you were just giving, a scenario, giving us a scenario about this uh, guy that homesteaded his house when he, he and his wife were together, and then they separated. Am I understanding this correctly? Well, they right. Se- he had the first homestead. Okay. And when he got the divorce, uh, he, uh, they rehomesteaded it. They filed a new one. Uh, saying that just her, only she was the owner, and it was just her property. And he they literally wrote in there that he did not live in the house. Okay, and he was doing this to avoid collect, uh, judgment being collected. Right, he was avoid us having that house going out to the house. Okay. Target. Okay, and so, and, and maybe we should define what homestead is, because maybe not everybody would know that term. Sure. Uh, homesteading is, the, some states, most states, not all states, uh, allow you to have a homestead exemption that protects you from creditors. So if you've been in the house um, and you've been paying on that mortgage for years and you've built up $50,000, $75,000 with the equity in the house, a uh, creditor can't just come along and just take it, sell it, and take the equity out of it. It protects you. It, it's meant to add some, add some stability to the environment for people when they have a hard time. They don't want creditors coming and just immediately selling the house. So it will tie that first bought bid will a cushion for them. So if they do have to force to sell the house, at least they get enough money to go put into a second place. Okay, but doesn't it only uh, protect the house for a given amount? It's it's not the entire... Um... No, it, well, it's for the equity. So, for example, okay. uh, if, there, if it was um, 75000 here in Colorado, I think it's 75000 If you're not elderly, I think it's maybe even more. But uh, that 75000 in equity is protected. So if you have a... a $100,000 house, and, and there's only $25,000 mortgage left over, you know, that 75000 equity is still yours. It's protected. Okay, so what would happen if the house is paid off and say it's worth uh, $700,000? What would happen then? Then a creditor would, would come in and sell the house. And what happens at first, they pay off any liens, the mortgages. They would give the homestead portion to the, to the, uh, the people, uh, and then they would take the rest. Oh, okay. So that's why we, whenever we have to go, go after some property, we always do the, the equity analysis. We see, you know, is it this worth doing? 
You got to take out the real estate uh, commissions. You got to take out any transfer fees and everything. And most of the time, it's just not. Most people just are, don't have that kind of equity. Some people do. The wealthy people tend to. Uh-huh. Not, regular, not regular people. Okay, so in this case, uh, he homesteaded in his name, said he wasn't, I mean, in her name, said right. he was no longer living there. And then right. what happened after that? She then moved away, and about a year later, she picked up a condo about 30 miles away. Um, he didn't have any, any idea, you know, because she was gone. He was, he was actually the one living in the house when he was saying that he wasn't. And then she went and bought a condo, and her attorney went ahead and homesteaded her new place. So that killed the homestead in the first place, except okay. he, did, he didn't know that, and she didn't know she did that to him because she didn't know he had played this game. Right, and, and the reason that happened is because you can only homestead your primary residence, and right. she just transferred her primary residence. That's right, and that opened okay. up the first house, which had about a half million dollars of equity in it, uh, for us to be able to go after all of it, all the equity. No homestead exemption. So My he goodness. Either, yeah, he either has to come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I lied about that homestead recording, which would have been uh, fraudulent encumbrance, um, or whatever it would have been. Um, but it, they didn't get to that point. Most of the time when we do this, it's to go approach them with the threat of this happening, which gets them to the table to talk and settle out. That, that's yeah. really the goal for most of this. It's not actually to, uh, to take away every, everything from everybody. I bet he wasn't a happy camper. <laughs> so, no, it was a little goodness. surprise because he didn't know that she had done this. And she didn't know that he had done this. Oh, my goodness. Her. So, and the only people who knew were us, which was, um, which is, it's fun for that part. Talk about example of unintended consequences. Wow. That's, that's what you get for being clever. That's what it comes down that, to. Yeah. So, uh, in that case, how, how did you settle it? What was the end result? Um, well, Believe it or not, in a lot of these cases, we'll find the gold and we'll hand the stuff over to the law firms. And they'll go in. A lot of times they don't tell us what happens, um, which is frustrating. Right. Occasionally at a conference, we'll run into them. They'll go, oh, yeah, we settled. You know, we got our million dollars. Everything <laughs> was great. We're like, wow. You know, because we have a vested interest because when you do that much research and you know that much about the financial shenanigans oh, yeah. of some people, um, you feel, you know, I'd love to hear what the end was. But we don't always hear that. And you don't work on a contingency uh, arrangement you you pay you, you paid for your work by the hour so it depends there it depends on the size we have different uh, working models where we'll work with we'll get paid let's say uh, a lower rate and then we'll get maybe something on the back if they do settle out okay. um, so it all depends some people have the money up front and they would rather just pay and those are, tend to be the people who have a lot more money and if somebody comes in and they just don't have anything but they have they have a good case, and they, they need some justice done. Um, and we're in a position to be able to, you know, to be able to work with them. We can do that. So it goes the full the industry okay. has, has a situation for everything. So, so then you were talking about timelining everything. So right. talk about that a little bit. Well, in that, that timeline, let's, it, it's a different view from those aggregated reports because that timeline lets us start to see the pattern and how they responded. That's our real goal because generally what happens is when somebody gets sued, um, they will say they go into protection mode, you know, and they'll start moving things. You know, they'll sell the boat to their brother. They'll, they will, um, you know, sell the house to the, to the wife, transfer it to the wife, and, and they'll, they'll do it. And a lot of them, they've never done this before, and they're new at it. 
but they're in protection mode and they're willing to take the risk because to, to see if they could try to save some of their stuff. So mm-hmm. the lens that I'm using is, um, and I think it's been brought up on the show before, these badges of fraud, these 10 badges of fraud. And one of them could be, you know, transferring property for no or very little consideration. I'm looking for those. I'm using that lens. Um, I go right down the list and try to find out, you know, did that transfer bankrupt the guy? Well, that's one of the 10 badges of fraud. I need those because I can, it's easier for me to reach in and pull that property back. It's a fraudulent transfer. Mm-hmm. If I can find several of the badges of fraud, then it is for me to pierce the corporate veil or whatever. Uh, that's, that is a more expensive route to take. Fraudulent transfer is much easier for us if we can show that behavior. And that's why I need to timeline all this. I need to show, put up my stack of exhibits. Is there a, uh, it seems to me I heard or read someplace that there was a that kind of a five-year guideline um, for you for, to transfer property. Like, for instance, if you, um, if you wanted to apply for Medicare, for example, and you can't have any assets, you would have to transfer everything a minimum of five years before. Is that, am I off base here? Well, yeah, you're really close. I mean, my definition of that is, is uh, statute of limitations. Uh, okay. We actually have a chart that we keep where we, every state has different statute of limitations depending on what it is. And we have to, um, we, that's by what we go for. Because the attorneys are going to look at that and say, yeah, and in fact, I had a guy who did that. He used his uh, company, invested in mortgages, and he used one of them where he moved into a multi-million dollar condo down in Miami Beach. He, and he bought it for a massive undervalue. And then mm-hmm. he turned around later and he sold it for, and they ended up pocketing a million dollars. And it was clearly a fraudulent transfer. I mean, it was uh, an insider deal. Um, but it didn't matter because it was outside of statute of limitations. The lawyers looked at it and said, it was, you know, that's nice, that's great. Uh, you proved he's a bad guy. Um, but it, there's nothing we can do about it. And that's, that's what we tend to go by is what the lawyers are going to respond to, which is Interesting. statute of limitations. Okay. All right. So, so when you say you look for financial events, that's the kind of thing you're looking for? Yes, exactly. I'm looking okay. for any, I'm looking for, like if there's a financial event is a sale of a property, I'm going to look at that um, and find out who did it get transferred to. What did they sell? I can look at the transfer tax that they got charged to find out if they got it, how much money they paid for it. And um, we're going to go in and ruthlessly research and dissect all those public documents um, to find out if some of them are backdated, if the notary is missing, if the notary has been counterfeited. It's amazing what can be done if you, if you analyze those uh, documents and really take them apart. I think we have a lot of trust when we see a document has been publicly recorded uh, because we see, okay, you know, there's a deed. Obviously, it was, it, the property was sold, and then you research mm-hmm. into who the uh, person was sold to, and you find out they're connected to the party. Well, there, there you have your threat, and we have to go through every single one of those. Right. Uh, follow every single event. What happened to, what happened back then? To where did it all go? And follow all of them to find out if we can deconstruct it. So, Rob, what? Ha- I'm sorry. Go ahead. I say it's a lot of work. I mean, it's it's yeah. It's um, very tedious, especially when you get in the the banking details, uh, which have to all be abstracted, you know, and analyzed and cash flow and analyzed. So it's it's that part of it isn't the fun part. But if you're patient and you're good at puzzles. Uh, there is a huge amount of uh, uh, work for this kind of this kind of skill set. So, what do you get into when there's a trust involved? Well, it, it we have to break down by what kind of trust. So, okay. it could be a revocable trust or an irrevocable trust. And I had a case recently where 
they sent over all the trusts because the husband had died, created, and the real estate had created this fantastic uh, insurance trust for the wife and the family. Very smart planning on his part. But the problem was some of those we knew were actually revocable trust that they were trying to roll into all this stuff. And he had more than enough money to pay off the debts. Well, the estate did. But they didn't want to hand any of it over. So when mm-hmm. they sent over the statements, their, every first page was missing, which said what kind of trust it was. So we're either looking for if it's revocable. Revocable is the same as a, a DBA or a, a person. We can, we can just, if you have a revocable trust, we can just take it as it's you. Mm-hmm. If it's an irrevocable trust, the attorneys will immediately panic, go, sorry, we can't touch it. But in reality, you can if the funds that went in it were, uh, sort, came from fraud. So, and you rob a bank, you put an irrevocable trust, you can still reach that because it was a source from fraud. Uh, you know, maybe it was over whatever, and that's part of what we, we try to prove also. So we'll look at that. It's just uh, it, anything that you gain um, by deception can be recovered. Right, correct. Yeah, okay, okay. Interesting. So, um, <laughs> so why would people even do a revocable trust? Well, I mean, it's, you know, when, when you start going up the money scale and they get some really good advice on how to set up their estates to protect themselves from creditors and, uh, you know, situations and take care of the family. So in that case, I think it's, it's great. But when you start seeing these panicked trusts being created, uh, being backdated, we had one where they backdated it years. They called it the, what it was like, the 2005 uh, trust. And in reality, it had been created in 2008. We knew it was. Uh, but, the, you know, that was the title of it. 2000, that way, when lawyers looked at it, they would say, oh, this was, this was created years ago. And it wasn't. Um, well, that doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, how can you say something's created? I guess right. when it's when it's filed, I guess it is, huh? Well, it's because a lot of a lot of trusts aren't publicly recorded. Yeah. Uh, okay. So if they're not publicly recorded, you have to subpoena the document and then look at it. Um, and that's what they made sure that they didn't give us any source documents. Okay. We had to go after. So my goal is to look at all those financial events, and then that shows us our subpoena targets. It tells me that's why bank go into the bank. I can see that you sold this house. I have no idea where you bank, but I know there was a closing. So I'm, we're going to subpoena that closing. We're right. going to find out where that money went, and then I'm going to start following it, um, start subpoena those documents. Now, granted, you have to be in some sort of legal action to be able to subpoena stuff. You can't just do it um, just because you want to. But once you have that, that lawsuit started, uh, that gives me the thread. I can go to, and I, we go into this process of repeat, repeat, repeat. I give, you know, we tell them the, the bank that we found, the thread lead to, get the bank statements back, we analyze everything, we will go back and say, all right, stuff got transferred here, subpoena again, and we will keep doing that until we can back into everything. You, you, know, um, you can back into a lot if you just start. All I need is that one thread. And you probably have to keep going, re- going back again and again, don't you, because things will change? Yes, your view will change. You'll start out, we had a case we started out, we were told... Uh, this debtor only has two companies, and neither one of them are doing very well. By the time we got done, he had a national network of corporations and an international network of corporations that was set up uh, to pull all this stuff. When we first started, we thought it was only, you know, this is all happening in this one state. And then a year later, we're like, oh, he's all, he's all across the United States. And then a year later, we're like, ah, oh, he's not international. Um, and because it was that good. 
uh, and our view changed depending on what, as we got better at building the whole thing. So you absolutely, you, you go through as best you can for, for first level. And it's, and it's like peeling an onion. You know? mm-hmm. um, so yeah, the goal is to get down to the next layer, but you can't see it unless you process that first layer first. You know? it, it sounds to me like, though, the, um, you want to get as much information as possible before a lawsuit is filed. Absolutely. It's interesting because when we looked at most of these, by the time we were done, we went back to the creditors and said, uh, and as polite as possible, um, you know, this person has done this before. This, and if you had just checked them out, um, this would not have happened to them, to you. Mm-hmm. But the problem, we were actually talking about, let's have a service that helps people pre-screen their vendors, pre-screen their, uh, the person they're going to lend a million dollars to. But we found out the psychology is not there. People want to believe this deal is going to be good. They yeah. trust this person because they like them. They're yeah. going to help them. I think I saw a Wall Street Journal article where they said they did a test on that whole gut instinct thing, and they said it was a horrible indicator. Um, and I can tell you from the, this, this recovery side, a lot of these cases, should have, the money should have never have been lent because um, all, all the signs were there. Um, and it's a lot harder because when you've got somebody who's done it before, they, and they've learned uh, how to hide their money, um, they, they, it's a little bit harder for us to get off the dime. Yeah, yeah. And I can, I can see probably how uh, somebody that is defrauding, doing this fraud kind of business where they gain momentum and as, as their reputation increases, then they probably get more mileage just because of their reputation. Sure. Yeah, yeah. They, get, they become smarter more. We, can, we actually see the phases in here. We can see the contractor that for years was an honest contractor that made a lot of money. Then we saw the correction come in 08 and 09 where they had a choice. They could either hand over their money, pay off all their creditors, and walk away clean. And a lot of them said, you know, well, some of them said, you know, I just can't do that. I can just tell them I lost it. And it worked. They said it. Mm-hmm. People settled with them. And then they got smarter. So, and the funny part, we'd go to the insurance companies that we had worked for. We worked for these cases, and the insurance companies would sell us. But I've known this guy for years. He's an honest guy. Well, we say, well, he was an honest guy hmm. until the circumstance happened. And now they're becoming. They become. You could see phase two, the second major lawsuit. The third major lawsuit. They get smarter and smarter, and it gets harder and harder for us to be able to get them. Um, and it's kind of like a, a jailhouse training for advanced debtorship. Amazing. And, and here's the funny part about it. Is a lot of these guys, we call it the smart, smartest man in the room syndrome, because they lied the first time. They think that, and people believe them, and settled with, let's say they borrowed a million, and they settled for a quarter of a million. And they're like, oh, this works. You know, people uh-huh. they go into the court. They look the judge in the eye, and they lie to them. And they go, this works. I, you know, this works. Until, they come, until it gets, the game gets advanced, and they start bringing in people like what we do. And then, then they actually have a problem, because now we have documentation of the lying documentation of the, the, the counterfeit uh, paperwork that they filed. Um, but, but a lot of them, we can trip them up if we get them early enough because of the smartest man in the room syndrome. Mm-hmm. They, they, they think they're the smartest ones because everybody has believed what they said. And actually, we like that because it's a, it gives us a better chance of being able to get them. Well, for sure, because they're going to let their guard down at some point in time. Yeah. And screw up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, for then, lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, well, there's always, the problem is there's too much, there's too much information out there to control. Um, yeah. We work, we're working now, still working on, uh, for years, a very, very large fraud case. 
And the biggest problem is, is the debtor has made it as complicated as possible, massively complicated, on purpose. You know, dozens of checks written to dozens of other checks of, of the companies daily. He, he controls all of them, so he can hide everything. We went to talk yeah. to one state financial fraud division, and they said, we've got boxes and boxes and boxes of this stuff. It's too much stuff. We can't, we can't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were able to process it all, get it in there, and the pro- now it's a problem for him because there's just so much he can't keep track of everything. Right. Uh, of what he's done. So the great thing about having all this data now being online uh, and available to us um, it is if you dig long enough and deep enough, people can't control all data. That's they true. control most that's, data. That's true. Okay, well, we need to take another break. That was the voice of Rod Gagnon. Stay tuned. This is fascinating. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program features Rodney Gagnon talking about fraudsters and scam artists. And I, while we were offline, I just asked him the question that I wanted him to answer here online is what was the most outrageous thing he ran into when he was uh, doing these investigations? Which is a great question because there's so much stuff we run into. But probably the one that I could think of that's just sheer size is we have a, um, a hedge fund guy that we've been chasing after uh, who bought up uh, mountain pools of, of mortgages. Um, and once we got in and started to realize what he was doing, um, the amount of, I mean, he, this, this guy pulls every trick, every single trick in the book. Delayed recordings, backdated recordings, forged documents, um, and it's just by the hundreds. And it's just um, shocking the amount of that he gets away with uh, hmm. in multiple states. Um, and he has 
perfected a system, pretty much I'd say almost perfected, because we can actually have been able to deconstruct it and uh, beat them up with it. But uh, just the sheer size and um, of what these what some of these guys can get away with is uh, going to be staggering. In this case, it's in the millions uh, mm. that he gets away with. Amazing, and and of course, before everything was uh, all, a lot of things were online, you could have these multi-state transactions that you couldn't be traced. True, but, to, but I today. think that the only advantage we had was back then, um, most of the, the investors that were buying notes, mortgages, and cash flows were actually the large banks. Uh, and, the, and some of those guys got in trouble, but the ma- vast majority of them don't. They don't need to. They make a lot of money. So mm-hmm. there's this new trend where investors, private investors, are getting in um, and buying the, these, these mortgages, notes, and everything. Uh, so that's good timing for us because you are correct. If it was back uh, 30 years ago, it would have been nearly impossible. It would be uh, just on cost alone to be able to put together what this guy did. We, you know, today's day and age makes it so much easier for us to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can certainly see that. Um, Rod, let's go back to the mortgage thing a little bit because I, I was interested in... in uh, one of the things you were talking about in your article about mis-invoicing. Is that what it's called? Um, oh, that was actually a side article um, that somebody else wrote. Okay, wrote well, can you talk about it? <laughs> yeah, I actually found it to be a fascinating article. I was like, wow, that's, a, that's really interesting. And that's in our newsletter. Um, but I, I get to see my stuff that goes in. I don't see it until the final product comes out. But, uh, yeah, sorry, I can't really address that. Okay. Well, just, since I brought it up, I'll just read this little part. It says, um, trade mis-invoicing has become a huge problem in developing companies. And evidently, um, hmm, they, um, it's the fraudulent practice of manipulating invoices to alter the price, quantity, or quality of the goods or services. And it, and it, it's used to launder money and evade taxes and customs regulations and all kinds of things. So it's kind of fascinating. Um, I don't know whether – I guess it doesn't happen here. Maybe it does in well, the United States. Well, that – yeah, you're talking about like this level. It actually – from what I heard, it does happen here, but it's um, – the level that I see that from our side, it's very similar. It's called sweetheart lawsuits, um, which is very similar. Basically, they're trying to um, hide – how much money is moving, or what's been encumbered. In our case, it's false encumbrances. So what it is is you're my friend. I have you sue me for a million dollars. Okay, and what I do is I say, well, yeah, I do owe her money. I owe Francie a million dollars. I confess that I owe it. And then you put a million-dollar lien on my property, and that ties up all the equity that's in it because I know the creditors are going to be coming after me. Um, And this is becoming more and more of a problem where we're starting to see these. Now, it looks really bad once we catch them because we can get that, that fake lien removed uh, and take it off. But it fools a lot of people. That's why we'll look at all the creditors and follow them all back to find false encumbrances that these guys will try to do. Hmm. Um, in fact, we found a, a recently another version of it, which is there were false modifi- modifications. Uh, we had this gentleman down in uh, Florida who was doing rental property. And it's like right on cue, every two years, he would modify his loan, modify his loan, modify his loan. Remarkably, it was modified for exactly the amount of money that would tie up his equity, that is the property increase in value. So we went back and, and, 
it kind of, it almost, I almost missed it because I've seen so many modified loans that are legit um, uh, with regular finance companies. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it was uh, turns out to be uh, a friend of his, not that far down the street. So we have to look at all those. So all the liens have to be looked at to find out. Um, in fact, the best one I saw was a case where um, the client we were working with had the second mortgage, and they were trying to buy the first so that they can finish foreclosing on the property. And the first, uh, they kept calling the guy, and the, and the owner said, I'm a small investor, you know, I have cancer, I'm dying, you know, just give you a little more time, we're dealing with some issues here. So they backed off. And after about six months, they, they said, can you check this out? This is very strange. We just want to buy this first mortgage so we can take this beautiful, you know, take, take this property back. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're in second, and there's not enough for us to be able to pull this off. It's not tenable for us to do it. Well, we found out that actually it was all, that the first had already been purchased, but it had been purchased by the people in the house. They had bought their own first mortgage, but they have never recovered, I never recorded a, uh, um, um, a thing in the county saying that it was paid off. To me, you buy your own first mortgage, it's, it's, you're paying off your mortgage, but they never recorded it. They left it in place and, and knowing that the second one to come get them. So hmm. uh, there's so many different variations of, of people trying to encumber their stuff to, to hide the creditors. And, it, and with just a little bit of research, it can all be uh, removed and taken apart. But, um, but you can miss it if you're not looking for it. It sounds so complicated. I can't imagine living my life that way. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. it's, it's too that, complicated. It. We found it because it was an overlap in one of the addresses. Uh, uh, we were looking at the addresses going, this is weird. Like, you know, the company's original recording address is the people who live in the house. And we're like, and then we followed it back, and they had a common lawyer that was involved. And we're like, oh, okay, it's them. They bought their own uh, mortgage. Yeah. Um, and, but, you know, from my side, which can be mind-numbingly boring for other people, it's absolutely fascinating. I think this stuff is so much fun because, it, because it's real, and you can really catch bad people. Um, and really change the things to get the money back for the people who actually, the creditors who got taken. For that, it's very rewarding. I guess it's only as as, uh, complicated as somebody's creativity can be. (laughs) Yeah, and they're they're trying every every day I'm finding out something new. Uh, Really? Every time I think, okay, I've seen it all, and then somebody comes up with something else, people are fantastically creative, which is funny because in the end, if most of these people had just simply filed bankruptcy mm-hmm. and reorganized things, um, there was really no need for this. People work very, very hard to protect their stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess, certainly. Of somebody else they promised not to. I promised to pay them back. Yeah. Rug, um, why don't you go back over? We're, we're almost at the end of our show. We've only got a few minutes left. Why don't you go back over the steps you take to uh, do these invest, in, investigations, uh, sure. kind of summarize them for us? Okay. Uh, the seven-step process. The first one is I get the address history um, from whatever data source I can get it from. Um, mm-hmm. the sec- because that gets me the counties, and I need to have the counties, which gets me into number two, which is the ruthless research at the public filings, uh, whether it's the county or the state, um, you know, uh, but you got to get the source documents, which is the county recorder's office, secretary of state, UCCs, um, the source document, and uh, DMV. The next one is then the third step is to take all that data and timeline it all to, so you get a different view on it so you can see what their behavior was, how they responded, and they found out somebody was coming after them. 
Um, and then fourth step is I look for financial events that come from that timeline. What did they sell? What did they buy? Um, suddenly the wife who had no money bought a beautiful place off the coast of Oregon. Mm-hmm. Kind of situation. And then you looked at through the lens of the badges of fraud. You look for anything that you can check that box and say it was transferred for no money or whatever. There's 10 of them, so there's, there's plenty to play with in there. Um, and then that gives you what comes out of that is it leaps you into subpoena targets. Uh, banks, uh, title companies, um, people who uh, property was sold to that may be straw holders. But that's how you get the list of your targets. And then from the information that comes back from that that you look at, step six is you just keep repeating it because that shows you the different level. You keep following the leads. Just like back in my repo days where I took that, that, uh, um, that contract uh, mm-hmm. where they bought the car and I went through every single thing on there. That's a, this is the same thing until it's all done. And that last step, which uh, we, which we had, didn't actually go over, which is you have to summarize it. And because we're dealing with courts and dealing with uh, uh, judges that get buried in this kind of data, they are, do not like the numbers like we do. So we end up having to summarize it succinctly and chart it. Our charts are probably one of the best things that we do here when it comes to pre- presenting to attorneys. They love the charts. Um, because You're talking about like a flow chart, a uh, visual yeah. flow Flowchart? Exactly. Because if okay. I'm detailing out a complex fraud uh, where the money was moving everywhere, I got about three minutes and their eyes start glazing over. I mean, <laughs> it's important, obviously, but, right. but it, it can be tedious if you weren't the one tra- chasing it. Uh, but if I show you a chart and it shows all the subcorporations and the trust and where the money all moved, that, I don't know, something about a little bit of color and, and uh, a well-done <laughs> chart that can really, really sell it. Um, or not sell it. It's just so because of, we like it's just, <laughs> it's just because we like pictures. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. We keep saying that we're going to we're going to give our charts with a free crayon because it keeps people's attention. <laughs> and um, you can use cartoon characters. That would be make it really interesting. <laughs> well, we got to be got to remember it's going a lot of the stuff is going into court as an exhibit. So, it's got to be simple uh, and it's got to be understandable to um, to everybody. And the, and the poor judge is getting buried in this, you know. There are judges yeah. that specialize in complex litigation, business litigation. That's their specialty, and I've seen them try desperately to stay away through some of these presentations. Oh yeah, yeah, I can yeah. see that. But the secret huh. is great charting, and there's some really great. Um, we we're at a really interesting point in time where the software is so much cheaper than it used to be. Um, but but you got you know if you can get succinct on that, um, that really helps sell all the work that we did. Ends up in the, at the end of a well done chart. Oh, you mentioned software. Let's talk about that a little bit. How do you, um, how do you, I mean, particularly when you're talking about these really large, complex investigations, how do you keep track of all this? Are you putting it on an Excel spreadsheet, or do you have a a program that is specifically designed for this? How do you do yeah. that? Well, we have well, we have a, um, a case management uh, program that we use. We actually use one that lawyers use to be able to control all the information because there is so much evidence that comes in that has to be organized and kept. And when somebody says, get me this, you can't go through a paper file to try to find it. You have right. to look for it. So we'll make folders and subfolders and subfolders. Um, and it's well organized in there, and it's all mapped up to the calendar, uh, and everybody can communicate through it. So it's without a great case management software, I don't, I don't understand how anybody could do this business. No. So does that... If, if you're pu- if you're inputting the timeline as you're getting the information, do, is that able to print out a timeline for you 
and aggregate it and put it all together? Um, yes. I mean, I, that, I don't generally use it that way. I generally, what happens is, because when you study, let's say you're studying the corporations, you become very, when you have to summarize all that down by hand, there's something that's said about having to abstract it that makes it very real and, it, and very immediate, and then you can go in and you chart that out right away um, because it's just so much data. And then when you switch over to UCCs or cars or something, you study that and then you put it in. I, I generally compile it. Generally, the, the case management program doesn't really help me with that. It's, hmm. it's being deep in the knowledge. That's the only thing that helps you. Okay, so how does the case management program help you? Well, it just keeps it organized. So what happens is, let's say I've done, uh, you know, a while ago I, I had mapped everything in Florida on this person. I was over in Nevada because we get these guys are now filing Nevada and Delaware and Wyoming and, and Utah. And I'm over in Utah and the final piece falls in. I have to go run it back and dig all that stuff out from Florida. Well, I'm two clicks away from getting everything I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it is. When the pieces come together... You have to be able to get to the information really, really quickly. Cannot I remember when I first started, we had thick file, file cases, and you had to flip through the papers trying to look for stuff, saying, hey, I think I remember this thing. Uh, now, between the PDF management programs to help you manage the, the, the copies, uh, right. charting software, and this uh, case management stuff, we can do stuff at, at a much better level than it was 20 years ago. Okay, all right. So much better, thank goodness, because I would shoot myself, I think. Yeah, yeah. Do it back, like the old days. Yeah, for sure. And the, and the cases have gotten more complicated. So, Rod, we are at the end of the show. Um, and uh, really appreciate it. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for joining in and giving your expertise. No, no, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. And for the rest of you, uh, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Ron Gagnon. It's P.I.'s Declassified. I'm Prancy Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francy Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 